This is a five train. The next stop is Wall Street. Herzlich willkommen zu Wall Street Weekly, dem Börsenpodcast aus New York. Ich bin Sophie Schimanski, schön, dass Sie wieder mit dabei sind. Na, wie viele leere Amazon-Pakete stapeln sich bei Ihnen im Altpapier? Keine Sorge, bei mir ist es genauso. Wir hatten ja auch gute Gründe, online zu shoppen. Die Geschäfte waren lange geschlossen oder es war einfach zu riskant. Und dank Facebook, WhatsApp und Instagram konnten wir mit Familie und Freunden in Kontakt bleiben, obwohl wir uns nicht mit ihnen treffen konnten. Und Google hat dabei geholfen, Verschwörungstheorien zu Corona zu sammeln und dann vielleicht zu widerlegen. Wir nutzen diese Plattformen täglich, ohne darüber nachzudenken. Diese Plattformen und Tech-Firmen haben unseren Alltag in jeglicher Hinsicht verändert. Dazu die EU-Wettbewerbskommissarin Margarete Vestager hier auf der Republika in einem Interview vor etwas mehr als einem Jahr. The scope and the pace of this industrial revolution that we're in is so much faster than ever before. And it's everything that has influenced. It's our friendships. It's our democracy. It is uh, agriculture, transportation, health, government, uh, manufacturing, uh, all strains of our society that is changing because of the, of the technological revolution. Sie bieten ihre Dienste an, oft unentgeltlich, und im Gegenzug dazu sammeln sie unsere Daten und verdienen ihr Geld, vereinfacht gesagt, mit maßgeschneiderter Werbung. So sind sie zu den größten, erfolgreichsten und wertvollsten Unternehmen der Welt geworden. Der Tech-Index Nasdaq Composite hat es trotz der Corona-Krise auf neue Rekordwerte geschafft. Die Tech-Unternehmen sind gerade in der Krise Anlegerlieblinge. Der Erfolg macht viele misstrauisch, vielleicht auch ein bisschen neidisch. Erst jüngst rief Tesla-Chef Elon Musk auf Twitter dazu auf, Amazon zu zerschlagen. Regulierungsbehörden und Politiker sagen, Monopole schaden Konsumenten und könnten Innovation ausbremsen, weil sie den Markteinstieg für neue Spieler erschweren. Auch andere Streitpunkte gehen aus dieser Machtstellung hervor. Nicht selten haben diese Unternehmen in der Vergangenheit Schlupflöcher in der Steuergesetzgebung ausgenutzt, sind nicht verantwortlich mit den sensiblen Nutzerdaten umgegangen und stehen im Verdacht dazu beigetragen zu haben, dass der US-Präsidentschaftswahlkampf beeinflusst und gefährdet wurde. Die Kritik an Facebook ist eine andere als an Apple, das ist klar. Doch eines haben sie gemeinsam. Tech-Macht. Doch sind diese Unternehmen strikte Monopole und ist es überhaupt legal, sie aufzubrechen? Gibt es Regulierungen, die stattdessen eingesetzt werden könnten? Ich habe mit Marshall von Elstein gesprochen, von der Uni in Boston. Dort unterrichtet und forscht er Informationsökonomik. Er ist Autor und Sprecher und forscht am MIT in Sachen digitale Geschäftsmodelle und Plattformen. Das MIT wurde gerade erst wieder zur besten Uni der Welt gekürt und ich freue mich wirklich sehr auf meinen Gast und darüber, dass er Zeit hatte. Außerdem werden wir Ausschnitte aus meinem Gespräch mit Garrett Johnson hören, der sich an der Universität Boston mit dem Treiben der Tech-Konzerne beschäftigt. Zum Schluss habe ich eine Börsenweisheit für Sie oder ein Sprichwort besser gesagt. Alle wollen den Tech-Konzern an den Kragen. Sogar Elon Musk, der Tesla-CEO, der eigentlich selbst ein Innovator ist. Er schrieb jüngst auf Twitter, Amazon sollte aufgebrochen werden. Damit ist er nicht alleine. Politiker, Demokraten wie Republikaner sind schon lange, milder ausgedrückt, skeptisch gegenüber der Marktmacht von Amazon, Google, Facebook und Co. 
In den USA sind es unter anderem die demokratischen Senatorinnen und Senatoren Elizabeth Warren, Tom Steyer, Cory Booker, aber ebenfalls Republikaner Ted Cruz und der Präsident. I'm not willing to give up and let a handful of monopolists dominate our economy and our democracy. I agree with Senator Warren that in fact monopolies have to be dealt with. They either have to be broken up or regulated and that's part of it. Anybody that does not think that we have a massive crisis in our democracy with the way these tech companies are being used, not just in terms of anti-competitive practices, but also to undermine our democracy. Das also die Meinung einiger Demokraten. Während der Fokus der Demokraten in diesen Debatten häufig auf Verbraucherschutz liegt und der Markt macht, geht es dem Präsidenten und den Republikanern mehr um Meinungsfreiheit und die mögliche Zensur von konservativen Meinungen. Das hier ist Ted Cruz, republikanischer Senator von Texas. Not only does Big Tech have the power to silence voices with, with, with which they disagree, but Big Tech likewise has the, has the power to collate a person's feed so that they only receive the news that comports with their own political agenda. Polling shows roughly 70% of Americans receive their political news from social media. That power is enormous. Und schließlich der US-Präsident selbst letzten Sommer in einem TV-Interview auf CNBC. I think it's a bad situation, but obviously there is something going on in terms of monopoly. Wir selbst reagieren oft geschockt, wenn wir erfahren, wie diese Unternehmen unsere Daten sammeln und verschachern. Doch das hält uns selten davon ab, diese Dienste zu nutzen. Wir pflegen eine Art Hassliebe mit vielen Tech-Unternehmen und Plattformen. Wir können oder wollen nicht mit ihnen, aber es geht auch nicht ohne sie. Und genau darauf setzen viele von ihnen. Sie haben ihre Geschäftsmodelle perfektioniert. Wir erstellen die Inhalte für Instagram oder Facebook – ohne dass wir dafür bezahlt werden wollen. Wir kaufen und verkaufen auf Amazon. So sind die Unternehmen überhaupt erst so gigantisch groß geworden. Die sieben größten Tech-Konzerne der Welt, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple und die beiden chinesischen Unternehmen Alibaba und Tencent, haben gemeinsam eine Marktkapitalisierung von 4,8 Billionen Dollar. Zum Vergleich... Die größten sieben Ölkonzerne der Welt kommen zusammen auf 1,5 Billionen Dollar, die größten Banken auf 1,7 Billionen. Politiker und Regulierungsbehörden rund um den Globus befürchten, dass diese Unternehmen so groß geworden sind, dass sie als Monopolisten ganze Märkte kontrollieren. Die Europäische Kommission hat seit 2017 Kartellstrafen in Höhe von insgesamt 9,5 Milliarden US-Dollar gegen Google verhängt. In 2016 hat die EU-Wettbewerbskommissarin Margarete Vestager eine 13 Milliarden Dollar Strafe gegen Apple verhängt, weil sie in Irland nur einen Teil ihres Gewinns versteuert hatten. Seitdem gilt Vestager als die Frau, die das Silicon Valley am meisten fürchtet. Amazon ist als nächstes dran. Vestager hat bereits 2018 eine vorläufige Untersuchung von Amazon gestartet. Es geht darum, ob Amazon die Daten von Händlern auf seiner Plattform sammelt, um dann mit eigenen Produkten zu konkurrieren. Die EU sind viel strikter als die Vereinigten Staaten, wenn sie Fehlverhalten vermuten. Trump klingt fast ein bisschen neidisch in einem Interview auf CNBC im Sommer 2019. Well, there's something going on, Joe, and I will tell you this, the European Union, every week you see them going after Facebook and Apple and 
uh, all of these companies these, that are, you know, great companies, but there's something going on. But I will say the European Union is suing them all the time. We're going to maybe look at it differently. We have a great attorney general. We're going to look at it differently. But when they give European Union $7 billion and $5 billion and $2 billion and, you know, Apple gets sued for $10 billion and, and uh, you know, that's right now it's going on, but they'll end up settling. They get all this money. Well, we should be doing. There are companies, so they're actually attacking our companies. But we should be doing what they're doing. They think there's a monopoly, but I'm not sure that they think that. They just figure this is easy money. We'll sue Apple for seven billion, and we'll make a settlement, or we'll win the case. Aber die US-Regierung ist zögerlich. In ihrem jährlichen Wirtschaftsbericht sehen Trump und seine Berater nicht, dass große amerikanische Unternehmen zunehmend Branchen wie Telekommunikation und Technologie dominieren. Sie würden weder Wettbewerb noch Verbrauchern schaden. Der Aufstieg großer Unternehmen sei für die Verbraucher möglicherweise gar keine schlechte Sache. Ähnlich sieht das Garrett Johnson von der Business School der Boston University. The question is, you know, are you a monopolist because you're operating, offering a superior service and a superior product to consumers or are you in some sense exploiting the marketplace? So we may have that Google has a dominant share of the search engine marketplace, but that may be because they are offering a very powerful service to consumers and they're offering it for free. So we would say that that is a good thing. Doch es gibt gute Gründe zu der Annahme, dass die Monopole viel Schaden anrichten. Sie stehen im Verdacht, Einkommensungleichheit zu verschärfen, die Verhandlungsmacht der Arbeitnehmer zu schwächen und Innovation zu bremsen. Tim Wu ist Rechtsprofessor an der Columbia Universität. Er sagte in einem Interview auf dem öffentlich-rechtlichen Sender NPR letztes Jahr: Yeah, it's the harms that uh, come with uh, monopolization, which is the ability of a company to get away with stuff. So if you take a company like Facebook, facing very little competition, they've been able to decrease the privacy protections uh, that they offer people. If you look at a company like Google with not much competition in search. They've been raising and raising their advertising rates. So it's less in the old-fashioned price-fixing kind of conspiracy, mm -hmm. but more about users having less choice, less places to go, and therefore companies being able to get away with more. I think there's enough evidence to look hard at the question. I've spent the most time looking at Facebook. They bought out a lot of their most dangerous rivals in the early 2010s. Uh, it's against the law to buy your competitors. Uh, Instagram and, and WhatsApp are two of their competitors they bought. So I think there's at least, you know, probable cause that they've done something. Die Schwierigkeit im Tech-Fall ist, ein Monopol überhaupt festzustellen, weil klassische Tests bei den Tech-Unternehmen nicht anschlagen. Es geht nicht so sehr darum, dass sie zu viel Preissetzungsmacht haben oder horrende Preise für Produkte oder Dienste verlangen. Weder Facebook noch Googles Dienste kosten den Nutzer etwas. Amazon ist so beliebt und erfolgreich, weil sie den klassischen Einzelhandel preislich oft unterbieten. Das sagt auch Marshall von Elstein. Mit ihm spreche ich gleich noch ausführlich, aber diese Einschätzung gibt's als Vorgeschmack. What's interesting is that in so many of these cases for tech companies, you failed so many of these different tests. I mean, really interesting challenge would be, you know, is Amazon in books? or cloud, or groceries, or an e-commerce, what's the relevant market that you're testing in that context? You know, are companies restricting output? Well, Google surely isn't restricting your, speed, your searches. 
Facebook certainly isn't restricting your posts and Amazon certainly isn't restricting your purchases uh, on that. If anything, would like you to post or search and, uh, you know, and sell merchandise as much as possible. And in platform markets, so often the prices are free to consumers or zero. So you fail most of the traditional tests uh, of antitrust. So it's, we have a really interesting set of tests, but uh, we would argue that things are very different today uh, than they were uh, a century ago. Die monopolartigen Unternehmen sehen heute sehr anders aus als damals der zerschlagenen Energieriese Standard Oil oder Telekommunikationsanbieter AT&T vor der Zerschlagung des Bell-Systems. Der Aufstieg der gigantischen Monopolunternehmen im Industriezeitalter wurde von angebotsseitigen Skaleneffekten angetrieben. Hohe Fixkosten, niedrige Grenzkosten. Im Internetzeitalter wachsen Monopole durch Skaleneffekte auf der Nachfrageseite. Sprich, früher produzierten Unternehmen ein Produkt, das sie verkauften. Heute sind wir in vielen Tech-Firmen die unbezahlten Arbeiter außerhalb des Unternehmens. Die Folge davon ist, dass die Wertschöpfung von innen nach außen umstrukturiert wurde. Deswegen sei die Methode der Zerschlagung veraltet und auf Tech-Unternehmen nicht anzuwenden, sagt Van Elstein. I think breakup is a bad idea. Amazon creates immense value. We need to limit their steering and we need to limit their unfair competition, but we should encourage them to create innovation and create lower prices. Those are good things. So I think we need we need better policy and that will happen. I think it can. Ein weiterer Grund spricht gegen die Zerschlagung und es ist paradoxerweise einer der Gründe, die auch dafür sprechen könnten. Ein Monopol lässt kaum innovative neue Marktteilnehmer mitmischen. Stoppt man jedoch einen Innovator wie Amazon, stoppt man damit ebenfalls Innovation. Tim Wu sieht das anders, erklärte er NPR. Schon das Wachstum der Unternehmen sei bereits illegal gewesen und sie zu zerschlagen würde für frischen Wind sorgen. I think sometimes it is. Returning to Facebook, I think their acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram were illegal and anti-competitive. And so if they were asked to spin off those companies, undo the acquisitions, it would be a form of breakup, but one I think that would reintroduce competition. I think breakups or, or undoing of mergers are actually called for more than we have appreciated in the last few decades. Eine Zerschlagung von Amazon könnte so aussehen, dass sie zum Beispiel die Lebensmittelkette Whole Foods wieder verkaufen. Bei Google könnte die Suchmaschine von anderen Bereichen getrennt werden oder YouTube könnte abgestoßen werden. Facebook müsste Instagram und WhatsApp verkaufen. Doch so einfach ist es selbst nach der Gesetzgebung nicht. Der Sherman Act wurde 1980 verabschiedet, um unter anderem Big Tobacco im Zaum zu halten. Später folgte darauf basierend die Zerschlagung von Standard Oil. Diese Unternehmen haben gegen Gesetze verstoßen und wurden deshalb aufgelöst. Gegen welche Wettbewerbsgesetze die Tech-Unternehmen verstoßen haben, ist nicht überall einheitlich zu sagen. Dazu hören wir gleich Marshall von Elstein. Es gibt eine Debatte, die außerhalb des Wettbewerbsrechts geführt wird. Man könnte die wenigen Unternehmen im Markt sich gegenseitig Konkurrenz machen lassen. Konkurrieren würden sie um uns, um unsere Daten. Anstatt sie an dritte Parteien zu geben oder untereinander zu tauschen, würden wir sie wissentlich verkaufen. Diese Idee hat zum Beispiel die Gründerin und Unternehmerin Cat Chrysostom bei ihrem TED-Talk besprochen. Und sie klingt spannend, wenn Sie mich fragen. 
If these monopolies are doing this and being paid by the advertiser, they should pay the user whose data preferences they are selling. I am here to propose just that. The idea of people owning, controlling, marketing, and potentially profiting from your own information. It could become an income stream for nearly every user, and it would force big tech to pay for their products, meaning your information, before resale. Ultimately, better leveling the playing field. Controlling our data would allow us to begin living in a world where we opt in, not out. Der Titel des TED Talks, falls Sie ihn sich anschauen wollen, lautet Breaking the Monopolies of Facebook, Google and Amazon. Von den mehr als 4 Millionen Abonnenten, die der TED Talk Kanal auf YouTube hat, haben gerade mal 13.000 den Talk gesehen. Ich denke, bei diesem Thema auf einer Plattform, die Google gehört, ist das ein Zeichen, dass sie den Finger in die Wunde gelegt hat. Sie merken schon, das Thema ist alt und neu, hat viele Facetten und wir können Microsoft, Apple und Amazon nicht über einen Kamm scheren und sie vor allem nicht einfach zerschlagen. Das heißt aber nicht, dass wir ihnen ausgeliefert sind und sie ihr Unwesen mit unseren Daten und Steuergeldern treiben dürfen. Das sagt zumindest Marshall von Elstein und damit lade ich Sie jetzt ein, unserem Interview zu lauschen. Hi Sophie, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Just fine, just fine. You have a pretty interesting set of questions. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's my pleasure. Uh, these are great questions and antitrust is certainly a, a wonderful question these days with lots of interesting nuances for different companies. Yeah, I agree. But not every powerful company is a monopoly. So if you want, what boxes need to be ticked for a company to be a monopolist? So there are several standard tests that we consider when you think of whether a company is a monopoly or not. So the first is do they have dominance in a particular market or what is a market where they actually have a significant market share uh, and can they move the prices around? Another test is, are they in some way restricting the output? Uh, you know, this might be one means of artificially raising prices, which leads us to another test, which is the, you know, a SNP test. It's a small but a significant non-transitory increase in price. So maybe they're price gouging. Uh, or another version of a test is, Uh, predatory pricing? Are they going below marginal cost uh, in order that they can shut competitors out and then raise the prices at some point in the future? So it's interesting. It's, it's a market uh, dominance question or a restricted output question or a price change question. Yeah, correct. Because that would have been my next question. I mean, Facebook doesn't cost anything like in a way that I feel like I need to have a subscription or anything like that. So um You said many of those tech companies fail those tests. So um, would you say that we can define Amazon, Facebook, Google, for example, as monopolists or are they simply market like dominant? So let's cover a couple of different ideas that might explore whether they're dominant and you know what the implications of that are. So in terms of um, dominance, Folks, companies like Facebook almost surely are dominant. They have massive market shares. There's something like 2.8 billion users. It's hard to argue that they have any competition, you know, except perhaps in China, uh, where it's a little bit harder to penetrate. So if you look at the relevant market shares within specific markets, uh, or if you look at Google in search uh, or in mobile operating systems, they have extremely high market shares. I believe 
For mobile operating systems, it's uh, north of 85%. Uh, and for search, it's, uh, it's roughly equivalent. So in terms of market share alone, those can be extremely high. But we have to also ask the question, how did we get there? So if we compare the technological methods by which folks have gotten there, Google was unequivocally superior technology uh, to AltaVista or to Yahoo, which were the original things that were competing with it at the time. The technology is so fundamentally better that it did a gooder job. If you're winning the market by offering a better quality product or service, typically that's not a problem. And you want to reward companies for innovation and actually offering better technologies and service. So we have to be a little careful about simply having market dominance and how you got to market dominance. That will bring us to a separate question of whether you're exercising abuse of market dominance, but it's certainly one of the things that we want to worry about. So what are the effects a monopoly has on different kinds of welfare? And can we see those effects in the case of Amazon or Facebook, for example? So there are several different theories of harm. And so we'd want to look at, at each of them in turn. One of them is, are you harming competitors or are you harming innovation would be, would be some other test. So have you excluded other people from the market? To give you a wonderful example of that, A clear violation happened with the antitrust case against Microsoft, I know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when uh, Microsoft forced Compaq and Dell to violate their contracts with Netscape, otherwise they were going to lose access to Windows. That's a clear example of harmed competitors. Uh, and there was Netscape at the time was clearly a highly innovative product. Again, this was 20, 15, 20 years ago. And so that was clearly clear evidence that a problem had occurred. But in many other cases, uh, take prices on Amazon, for example. They are typically offering prices that are at or below the prices that others might offer. And so the consumer element of harm typically isn't present in those cases. So it really depends on where we're looking in the ecosystem. So do these companies actually reduce innovation and consumer welfare? I mean, this, again, might be different from case to case, but maybe you could uh, mention some of the cases that are more, more significant when it comes to this. To be honest, this, as far as I can tell, that, the answer to that question is still open and ambiguous. Let me see if I can give you evidence in both directions. So when you consider competition off-platform, there may be some evidence that there are anti-competitive practices. If you look what Facebook has done, for example, to thwart growth in the user base of Snapchat when they refuse to sell, it is the case that they have copied all of their features and they've used their network effects to continue dominating a market, which provides some evidence that competitors have been harmed in that context. So we have to look at, are we looking at competition For the platform, or are we looking at competition on the platform? And we might get slightly different answers depending on how we ask that question. So again, I, I would argue it's still a somewhat open question. Yeah, and I guess it, it makes it especially challenging when it comes to the question if the government needs to act, and if so, how? I mean, breaking them up has become um, a popular way of a solution, if you want, How would a solution, if you want to call that a solution, look like and uh, what good would it do in order to be labeled a solution? So let's examine those proposed solutions and then also how we got here. Okay. So some of the proposed solutions are things like breakup. Uh, would you 
disaggregate Facebook and split it back into Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, as an example? Or uh, would you break Google into separate services? I would argue that that intervention is not a good idea. Uh, there are other interventions which might be a good idea, but that one in particular, I would argue, is a bad idea. Let me try to unravel this thinking and show how did we get here? Why are things so different today from antitrust rules of the prior century? So I've been working on a particular set of ideas with a colleague, Jeffrey Parker, uh, at Dartmouth. And one of the things we described is platforms are inverted firms. Let me explain what that means. And in some sense, what they've done is they've moved production from inside to outside. How did we get monopolies a century ago? Those were all driven by supply-side economies of scale, high fixed costs and low marginal costs in this case. So you would get scale, which would drive prices lower, drive out competition, which would give you further scale and create a feedback, which would give you gigantic size. Notice in a supply-side world, the way you increase profits is to restrict output and then raise your prices, which is, again, where we got to those particular tests. That is not what's happening in the current economy. So Jeff and I developed these models where it, what's happening is this is based on network effects, where users or partners create value for one another. What that means is you cannot scale network effects as easily as inside, inside the firm, as easily as outside the firm. What that means is you shift value creation from inside to outside. Platforms become orchestrators of value production of third parties. It makes no sense to restrict output. And what you're trying to do is get as many parties, third parties as possible to produce on your behalf, to create posts, to provide rides, to sell merchandise, all on top of your platform and your service. In that context, again, you get an inverted firm. You've got demand-side economies of scale on the revenue side is completely distinct from supply-side economies of scale on the cost side. So the interventions we had from a century ago don't work for the interventions we need for the 21st century, right? Demand-side economies of scale are different than supply-side economies of scale. So that's why the old system doesn't work. Yeah, that will be the question because you're saying breaking them up is not a good idea. So... Is there a better way to do that? Yes. So if you broke them up, what you're doing is you're carving up the network effects. I mean, the data from one isn't then useful as the data to another. The proper intervention in this case is to borrow an old idea and combine it with a new idea. So a far better mechanism is to use the kind of legislation that the Europeans have introduced with PSD2, or Payment Services Directive 2, or also known as open banking. What this does is it allows the users to grant third parties access to their networks with their permission and access to their data. So imagine, by contrast, you individually were able to grant access to Google to your Facebook data, or you were able to you know, grant Facebook access to your Amazon data. Then they could create additional network effects on your behalf. You haven't had to leave your old network behind. You haven't had to leave your data behind. But you're enabling third parties to create additional network effects and create additional value on your behalf. It's a much better mechanism for dealing with demand-side economies of scale as distinct from supply-side economies of scale. It's gaining access to those underlying resources to help you out create and create value. 
I mean, that's really a point that I find so interesting. We are the reason that the network effects actually work. We are the network, we are the net. I mean, that would be an interesting thing if we would actually be able to sell it and they buy it from us. So we have a revenue stream. So two thoughts on that. Of course, you know, imagine you're able to get Google to compete with Facebook for creating value on your behalf. Then the chances are that you're going to get to claim a greater proportion of that value. Each side is going to have to reward you more for the value that's being created. Another point is to look at the numbers. It's amazing how much value is being created by these external communities. Again, you know, Jeff and I call them, this is a theory of the inverted firm. If you look at the data on New York Times reduces its own story versus Twitter, where you and I create the news, they have the same number of employees, but Twitter has a market cap five times that of the New York Times. Or compare Airbnb to Marriott. It's fascinating. They have uh, approximately the same market value, but Airbnb operates with less than one-tenth the employees. Why? It's because you and I are creating the value. It's an amazingly different business model. Again, what we're seeing is, uh, we've been working on is these different theories of one, what are the structural changes in the economy? And two, what is driving these structural changes in the nature of value creation within the firm? The insights for antitrust are we need a different kind of intervention which doesn't destroy the value-creating processes. Instead, it continues to create value, but it also redistributes that value more equitably and fairly to those parties and participants, you and I, who are creating that value. So um, what can you see happening? Try to, to use your crystal ball. I mean, Trump seems to have been less concerned recently. So... Um, Do you expect them to get regulated more strongly in the future? Do you see any action? Does it depend? I mean, it obviously depends on how the elections are going to go. But what do you see in the happening in the future? My honest impression is that we will start to see regulation moving in Europe ahead of moving in the United States. By analogy, we had the um, you know the general uh, GDPR uh, directive on privacy regulation in Europe uh, happen before we had an analogous set of legislation happen in, say, California. Uh, and we're likely to see more of that kind of thing taking place. For reference, I think GDPR had some real flaws for it. It's distinct with open banking, which I think was a much wiser uh, intervention. I believe, again, what will happen is that we'll, uh, we will, over time, see better uh, regulatory protections for consumers, better regulatory protections for labor, and these institutional mechanisms that start to provide access to the resources and create competition on top. By analogy, remember we saw gigantic firms emerge in the age of railroad, electricity, steel, oil. That's what gave us you know, the antitrust legislation, the Sherman Act of the prior century. These are different business models, and it took a while for the laws to catch up. They will catch up. They absolutely will catch up. But they need better theories of what the changes in the economies are and how the nature of the firm has changed over time uh, in order that we can actually intervene in the way that creates value as opposed to destroy it. And I think that it, that will happen. I do think it's going to happen in Europe ahead of the United States, but I think it will happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to that point, I mean, whenever you watch those uh, Congress hearings, There's just a huge amount of serious miscommunication because 
it is so hard to explain or seemingly so hard to explain for Zuckerberg how they're actually making money. And that's probably one of the, the factors where the laws just have to catch up and our understanding of what these companies and platforms actually do has to catch up. So I'm hoping that we can provide expertise to the regulatory bodies that will actually help move things forward in a healthy manner. Again, I, I, don't, I think breakup is a bad idea. Amazon creates immense value. We need to limit their steering and we need to limit their unfair competition, but we should encourage them to create innovation and create lower prices. Those are good things. So I think we need, we need better policy and that will happen. I think it can. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. That was a great conversation, really helpful and really interesting also. It's a great set of questions. Thank you for asking and I'm happy to help anytime. Thank you so much. Have a good day. My pleasure. Take care. Unsere Börsenweisheit ist heute eher ein Sprichwort. Es kommt von dem Herausgeber und Marktexperten Dennis Gartman und lautet The markets will return to rationality the moment you have been rendered insolvent. Erinnern Sie sich noch an Bullen und Bären, an pessimistische und an optimistische Anleger? Na, momentan wird der Bulle innerhalb kürzester Zeit zum Bären und andersherum. Wenn man nicht aufpasst und zu sehr auf die täglich wechselnden Schlagzeilen achtet. Mal ist die Corona-Krise im Griff, dann steigen die Infektionszahlen wieder. Mal verspricht die US-Notenbank Geld in den Markt zu pumpen, dann wiederum gibt sie einen negativen Ausblick ab und die Kurse fallen in sich zusammen. Eine Förderdrosselung des Öls? Super, aber der Ölpreis fällt trotzdem. Sehen Sie, keiner weiß, wo die Reise gerade hingeht. An den Börsen aber werden ein paar Leute dafür bezahlt, dass sie so tun, als wüssten sie es. Lassen Sie sich nicht blenden, weniger tun ist gerade besser, als panisch Aktien zu handeln oder den besten Zeitpunkt abzuwarten. Für was auch immer. Denn, um zum Sprichwort zurückzukommen, wenn Sie auf rationale Entscheidungen von anderen warten, dann warten Sie lange und gehen vorher pleite. Das war's von mir. Ich danke Ihnen fürs Zuhören. Ich hoffe, Sie konnten etwas mitnehmen. Wenn Sie Anregungen, Wünsche oder Feedback haben, schreiben Sie mal einfach eine E-Mail. Alles einfach an wallstreetweekly at mediapioneer.com Wir hören uns nächsten Montag wieder. Bitte bleiben Sie gesund. Von Herzen, Ihre Sophie Schimanski.